It's Thursday, September the 9th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a distinguished policy fellow here at the Hoover Institution, and I will be your moderator today. That means that I have the honor of introducing the stars of our show, the Goodfellows, as we jokingly refer to them. And right now we have one Goodfellow on the show, John Cochran, who's the Hoover Institution's senior fellow. Uh, Neil Ferguson is supposed to be with us. He may join us in a few minutes from Europe. We're trying to track him down. We're also usually joined by H.R. McMaster, but the good general is uh, on the road this week. He couldn't make it. He sends his regrets. And he regrets not being here today because we have a very special guest, and that is the director of the Hoover Institution, Condoleezza Rice. Condi, welcome back to Goodfellows. Thank you. Great to be back with you, Bill and John. Look forward to it. So this being September the 9th and two days before the um, 9-11 anniversary, the 20th anniversary of this year, the attacks, Condi, we would like to talk about the significance of that day and what it's meant to America in the 20 years since, and then also look forward to what comes in the next 20 years. And I thought we'd start by maybe you offering a few thoughts, a few reflections on what happened that day. Uh, from what I understand, you were in, uh, you were holding a National Security Council meeting, so you uh, would be, you would have been, I guess, in the Eisenhower building next door to the White House. I believe you're handed notes that the attacks were going on. I think your first reaction was, this is kind of an odd thing, a plane hit the World Trade Center, but then the second plane hits, and it's obvious that, you know, terrorism is afoot in New York City. Two questions, Condi. First of all, when was it apparent to you and your colleagues that this was the handiwork of al-Qaeda and bin Laden? And then secondly, take us through what it's like to process something like this in real time. So much of Washington is planning, you know, going through war scenarios, foreign policy scenarios. Here is a real-life crisis unfolding in front of you. You have to process intelligence, what you know. You have all kinds of wild rumors afoot. Is the White House going to be hit? Is the Capitol going to be hit? What do we do? Take us back to September 11, 2001, and just give us a little insight as to what happened. Well, actually, uh, Bill, um, I was actually in my office when this happened. Mm -hmm. I would go later to uh, meet with my staff, uh, and that's when I learned that a second plane had hit the World Trade Center. And right about that time, we knew that it was a terrorist attack. <clears throat> the first plane, I think we all thought was some kind of weird accident. I actually called President Bush, and you'll remember he was at that event in Florida for kids. And and he said, well, that's a strange accident. But then when we learned that a second plane had hit the World Trade Center, and then uh, really uh, incredibly unnerving when we couldn't get a hold of Secretary Rumsfeld. They, they said his phone's just ringing, 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 and a plane had hit the Pentagon, and they'd been evacuated. And about that time, the Secret Service came, and they said, you've got to get to a bunker because planes are flying into buildings all over Washington. The White House is probably next. And uh, when the Secret Service wants to escort you under those circumstances, they don't actually escort you, they sort of pick you up. And I sort of remember being levitated toward the bunker, um, getting there, and the vice president was already there. <clears throat> and to your point about the unexpected, um, he was on the phone with President Bush, and every plane in the air had become a missile. And so right. the first, the first most important thing was to get every plane out of the air. And so um, I'll never forget the scene of the vice president on with the president saying, uh, the Air Force wants to know, should they shoot down uh, any plane that's not squawking properly? There were lawyers uh, upstairs trying to figure out, did we have the legal authority to do that? Um, the president gave the order. Uh, you had Norm Mineta, who was at the time the transportation secretary, sitting there trying to, on a legal pad, trying to figure out how many planes had to be grounded. It was really quite remarkable, but it was calm. It was in a it was peritonally calm uh, under the circumstances. Everybody just trying to do their job, but there was this one awful moment when um, a plane went down in Pennsylvania, and we thought that perhaps we had shot it down, and the Pentagon could not confirm that it had uh, encountered, as they put it a civilian aircraft. So it was surreal in many ways. Uh, but in those circumstances, you just have to work through uh, what is surreal. Nobody had exercised for that specific scenario because what Americans often forget and the world often forgets is we had not actually been attacked on our territory mm -hmm. since the war of 1812. We had no internal security mechanisms whatsoever. Right. The military had a command for every um, continent in the world, but not for North America. And so we were actually protected in those first uh, days 
by um, by NORAD, by NATO, uh, flying um, combat air patrols uh, to protect us. And were this to happen again, Condi, um, does the White House, the NSC, the Pentagon, the State Department, do they have protocols in place now after 9-11? Would it be a different reaction? Would it still be again kind of flying by the seat of your pants? Oh, I think it would be very, very different now. Um, it was such a shock. I think you, you just have to realize such a shock at that moment. Uh, but now uh, there's a generation of foreign policy specialists, of people who've been in administrations, um, who, <clears throat> who know uh, that that is a possibility. We also have, and I, and I want people to understand this, uh, we are safer now. We're not safe, but we're safer. And it's in large part because of something that you just said. Uh, we have now intelligence uh, capabilities that we did not have before that I think might have allowed us to see something coming. I'll just give you one example. The controversial NSA program uh, that uh, was revealed by Edward Snowden, where the United States government was using um, a bulk data analysis to track terrorist phone numbers. So how would this work? You'd find a phone number on a dead terrorist. You would ping that number against all possible numbers. And you would say, who's that number calling? And so uh, if you weren't calling a terrorist, you had nothing to be concerned about. But if you were calling a terrorist, there would then be a wiretap and you would know what was going. Why do I bring up that one? Mm -hmm. We know that now that on September 8th, um, Hamzi al-Mittar, who would become one of the hijackers, actually made a phone call from San Diego to Afghanistan. We don't know what he would say, but I can tell you that if anybody had known that Hamzi al-Mittar was in the country, the lights would have been blinking really red because he was a well-known uh, terrorist. And so uh, that's just one example of some of the things that we've put in place that I think would give us uh, better insight into what was going on. Right. Let me pick up on that a little. Um, one of the things that I, I remember that day vividly as well, I wasn't in the White House, I was walking my kids to school. Uh, and it's the day everybody will always remember where they were when they when they heard about it. Um, we, we got sort of despair about America falling apart. But this seems to be a case where things have been fixed. Now, it's not in the news. But uh, I would once we realized it was a terrorist attack, I don't think any of us thought we would go 20 years without another major terrorist attack in the US. And it has not happened. And I think uh, this is because, well, this is what you're going to tell me. But I get the impression this is because of the quiet, determined work of a lot of people to fix things that were broke. I mean, we heard stories about the fire department didn't know, the FBI didn't know the phone number of the fire department and vice versa fix things we were broke, fix our intelligence agencies. Every time we hear of a terrorist plot un unfoiled, it, it's, it, it sounds like a, a terrorist meeting now is half FBI agents. <laughs> uh, they're really on top of it. Uh, and not just federal, uh, you know, the New York police has apparently has been very, so in one sense, I, I hope you'll help us to celebrate um, that here was something that America structurally fixed. Our bureaucracy was able to get it doing something. But that also raises the question, uh, you know, after 20 years, we tend to forget um, I noticed in, in studying the uh, uh, COVID thing that there were dozens of pandemic plans um, put on and PowerPoint presentations and put on sort of the, the last scene of the Raiders of Lost Ark shelf. Uh, and I'm, I'm despairing that we're going to learn anything from this one and get it right. So um, is that impression right? Uh, to, to what extent did we actually fix something? But in what extent is, is that in danger of, of falling apart and being forgotten? Well, we clearly fixed a, a number of things, uh, John. And, and one, one difference between the COVID uh, plans that were on the shelf and what happened on 9-11 is that you really, you saw some institutionalization of important things. So uh, you mentioned uh, who could talk to whom. We realized that first responders in Virginia couldn't talk to first responders in Southern Virginia, let alone in Maryland or Washington, DC, but there's now a first responders network that is a national network where first responders can talk to one another. Uh, there is a means for, for tracking terrorist financing. It turns out the best way to follow a terrorist is to follow the money. And so we can now track these transactions and banks and across the world really 
are very much vigilant about what kinds of transfers are being made uh, through banks and even through, um, through ways that might go around the banking system. We have ways to track. Uh, if you walk into an airport today, uh, you see 9-11. Uh, before you walked into that airport, you, you know this bill, John, you know, you could go up to the gate and meet your people coming in and, and it was all very loose. Well, now you do go through metal detectors and people are, uh, are aware of what can happen on an airplane. So I think we've done a lot and the, the thing we did probably best, um, it's not perfect, but because of our notions of civil liberties, the FBI could basically not share information with the CIA and vice versa. The CIA was external uh, security and intelligence, and the FBI was internal security and intelligence. What people forgot was that that border, so, so, so to speak, uh, between our soil and the rest of the world was actually quite permeable. And if the CIA had known what the FBI knew about pilots training to go one way, they might have thought that something was going on. So we did, I think, close some of those seams and those gaps. So yes, I think we, we've done a lot. We have a Homeland Security Department. Probably every state in the union now actually has a Homeland Security Advisor, a word we hadn't actually even heard before 9-11, Homeland Security. And so a lot has changed, but I will say this, um, memories do fade. Um, I teach kids who weren't born on 9-11. And uh, we will eventually get to a point where there will be an administration where uh, it will be kind of like World War II was for us in the Bush administration. It was something our parents did. And we have to therefore keep telling the story and reminding people how scary it was in those days immediately after 9-11 when we were getting terrorist threat plots about a smallpox attack in the United States when the anthrax attacks did take place and we later learned they were not Al-Qaeda, but we thought so at the time, we have to keep telling the story. And uh, perhaps we'll get into this. Um, I am worried about leaving Afghanistan for exactly this reason. Um, we have to have intelligence and intelligence can't be green, cannot be gleaned uh, from satellites. Uh, for this kind of information that we need to fight terrorism. Well, let, let me let me put in a word for civil liberties. I, I don't want us to be on record saying it's wonderful if the government listens into all of our phone calls and every single part of the government can can listen there and leak it whenever somebody is disgruntled about uh, our yeah. political opinions. Um, no, John, let me just look. I'm a big. I, I just wanted that for the record. I know we. I, I, I believe in civil liberties too, but let me be very clear what was not being violated by the, it was simply not true that the NSA was listening to your conversation with no. your grandmother. They, they didn't care. They didn't have time. Well, the metadata, the metadata could be, uh, if, if the, if, if there's a government knows that you called the cancer center and you want to run for political office, this is the kind of information that can be revealing. But it, let's it, not, I just wanted to put a marker in there. No, but this is, this is an important point, right? But the, oh, yeah. the fact is, Nobody really had time to worry about whether you were calling the cancer center with all due respect. Uh, and so the real issue was whether or not, and, and by the way, I always said that the good thing about the United States is people say, well, how do you balance security and uh, civil liberties? Well, we actually don't balance it within the executive branch only. The president is commander in chief. The president is always going to err on the side of security. If you don't believe that, look at constitutional lawyer Barack Obama, who still carried out many of George Bush's Patriot Act um, works. Uh, we have Congress that can decide whether something should be in legislation. So we had to go back to get the Patriot Act uh, authorized and reauthorized and reauthorized. And ultimately, we have the courts that decide whether something is constitutional. And they decided, uh, siding with, with John Cochran, they decided that bulk data collection was too dangerous. And they said it's not constitutional. So we don't do it anymore. So I think it's really important for Americans to realize that we safeguard civil liberties within a system of separation of powers 
that acknowledges that the president will always be more security oriented, but that the courts will uphold uh, the Constitution. I'd like to go back to Afghanistan for a minute. Um, you were saying before we got on the call that they are running out of food. Uh, they're going to starve. So you have a humanitarian crisis uh, occurring. Uh, preceding that as a human rights crisis, and Lord knows what happens to women in that country now. All the progress they made in 20 years are about to be erased. If they return to old form and become an aircraft carrier again for terrorism training, we're looking at a national security crisis at some point. You have worked in government at the highest levels. This ties into uh, what you said about 9-11. Um, I don't want you to throw anybody under the bus. There's enough blame going out of Washington as is, but how can so many bright people, people very educated in foreign policy you've worked in government for, how can so many people collectively create such a bad situation? I think, Bill, that for, for some reason, uh, people, perhaps including the administration, bought into a narrative that I think is actually a false narrative. This is the narrative of endless war. This is the narrative of our longest war. Afghanistan was an example of forward deployment. We are forward deployed today in Germany and Japan because we believe that that's the best way for Germany and Japan to be protected. We are forward deployed in Korea in a war that actually never ended. The Korean War is an armistice, it was a stalemate. But we are deployed there because we don't believe that the 500,000 man, highly sophisticated South Korean army is enough to deter a radical regime to its north. And so we have 28,500 troops deployed in Korea and have been for 70 years. So this narrative that we had to end the war and get out I think was a false narrative and it colored the way that people thought about the potential for a few thousand American forces staying in Afghanistan to help the Afghan army with air, air power, to help uh, continue to train them, to do intelligence operations, to do special operations. And to my mind, one of the biggest assets that we gave up was Bagram Air Force Base. Uh, Bagram Airfield, um, I'll tell you a little story. So when we got ready to go into war in Afghanistan, we realized we didn't have any airfields from which to fly close, uh, close air support. So we paid a king's ransom to Karimov, the dictator of Uzbekistan, to let us use his airfields. Now we're told by the Russians that they've told the Central Asians they should not us, let us use their airfields. And we've given up the only airfields that we have. If we actually did have to fly close air support for some reason, even those drones that everybody loves, uh, we now have to fly from Qatar, which is quite a long way away. So I, this notion of a false narrative and not understanding that what you were doing was forward deploying so that they didn't fight here, we wanted to fight there. I think that's what governed uh, the way that folks thought about this. And, and while you've got me on a roll, let me just say one more thing about it. This uh, false narrative of, I think the president said, we're gonna stop trying to remake other people's countries. Now, if you go to Afghanistan because the attacks came out of Afghanistan and you say, we're just gonna fight this war and get out, the mess that you leave behind, the failed state that you leave behind, that's actually where terrorism breeds, is in failed states. So the idea of a more stable Afghanistan and then a more democratic Afghanistan that could, could uh, as you put it, for women and for Afghans, uh, that was also in our self-interest to help build a stable state. So I think it's the way that the narrative was turned that led to, I think, some bad decisions. Let, let me, I, this, I got about three questions I want to ask you on this. Uh, I mean, on the narrative, the, the war is the global war against radical Islam. Uh, and HR likes to remind us on this show that wars are over when the enemy says it's over, not when you say it's over. Right, um, exactly. But this, this is a, 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 a lost battle in a larger war. And uh, that, that war is not about Afghanistan. It's about all over this part of the world. Well said, well put. Continue. Yeah. I do want to find out. So there's a lot of on the ground bungling that happened here. Uh, there's a lot of strategic bungling that happened out of the White House. 
Now, th- there's something where you have particular. So this is something we were talking about in the last couple of weeks, too. This isn't just, you know, Biden is not personally telling each sergeant where to go. <laughs> uh, and also decisions like this get made in a process between a president, national security advisor, secretary of state, uh, everybody else who's in on it, and then their staffs and all the rest of it. So how did this go so wrong in the process? Uh, this, I mean, I've seen articles. This is like Bay of Pigs, not like Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. Uh, but this one seemed like that process went wrong. And then there is tremendous bungling up and down the chain in the execution. I'm sure it was not Biden personally who said, by the way, leave Bagram, leave it in the middle of night and don't even tell the Afghans that you're on your way out. Um, so let me start with that as, as my question. It, having seen process and character what what in the making of this catastrophic decision do you see that went wrong? I would cite two things, uh, John. The first is, uh, imagine that uh, Roosevelt or later Truman had said, World War One, uh, World War Two is going to end on January 1st, 1945, <laughs> right? Uh, it, Boys will come home. <laughs> yeah, the minute you set a deadline like that, you have, uh, you've already lost. Let, let me add, and we encourage Hitler and company to join the negotiations to <laughs> exactly. process where there will be a power sharing arrangement. There will be a power sharing arrangement. So, yeah, right, that's gonna work. So the first thing is don't set a deadline. Um, and uh, once you've set a deadline, all kinds of things, because you're right, it's not like every unit is uh, responding to exactly what the president said. It's, it's like you've got the pyramid at the top and now everything's cascading downward. Now they know they've got a deadline. There's certain things that they have to get done by that deadline. And they're going to get those things done by that deadline one way or another. And so if it means uh, that you close down Bagram and for security reasons, you leave in the dead of the night and the Afghan commander finds out the next morning, well, that's one way to, to be secure when there's a deadline. And by the way, uh, here the Trump administration does bear uh, significant oh, yeah. blame. I mean, you know, they set the original deadline. So uh, the, the first point I would make in any public policy class is don't set a deadline stuff will start to happen the minute that you set a deadline. But why do they? So the only reason I can see it is that a politician wants to get credit for the success now. And so he it's promises the success. That's why. Yeah. It, yeah I, it's a, a fo- I want a photo op on 9-11. And yeah. not just, uh, if you wait till 9-11, you'll get the photo op if you're successful. But I want to get the, the spike in the polls now for the photo op. It's the only reason I can see for a well, well, let me be a little bit more charitable in the following Please. way. All right, <laughs> let me be a little bit more charitable. I do think, uh, I think it was a mistake. Let me be very clear. But I do think that the president, President Biden, has believed that our presence in Afghanistan needed to, quote, end for a very long time. Um, And uh, by all accounts, uh, when President Obama decided to expand the surge in Afghanistan uh, before bringing down numbers, uh, then Vice President Biden was apparently opposed to that. So this has been in his DNA for a long time. He's wanted to get us out. Uh, And maybe September 11th seemed like a a natural time because it was the 20 year anniversary and so forth. But for whatever reasons, um, it's just not a great idea to set a deadline like that. The one, the other thing is, uh, when you tell the military they're going to have to be out by a certain deadline, and you forget that it might be better to have the civilians out before the military is out, uh, you've you've compounded the mistake of setting the deadline. Right. Now, can I ask a, a second question on on this topic? You, you phrased this. And I hope you're going to agree here. We phrase this a lot in the war on terror. Yeah. In some sense, that always seemed like a, a mistake and, and an increasingly bad one. I mean, is the only reason to think about Afghanistan because they might be a place for repeating 9-11? No, it seems like in some. So first of all, terror is just a weapon in a larger war. Yes. Uh, and we're not having a we never had a war on terror. But phrasing it that way, when I think of everything going on in foreign policy, Syria, uh, Libya, Iraq, uh, containing China, containing Russia, where there's, there's a geopolitical thing that's going on, which we'll get into, but it's not. Uh, phrasing it as being all about terror seems very narrow-minded and very anachronistic almost. 
Yeah. And it's really interesting, you know, in the moment, it seemed like the right thing to say to be, to be frank, you know, oh, yeah. um, and, and because at that moment, this was about uh, not having another terrorist attack. Right. Uh, it's interesting that you say narrow. Many people think it was actually too broad because it, quote, dragged us into other people's terrorist fights. So, for instance, um, I remember when uh, President Bush was asked by then uh, Spanish President Athnar, well, what about the Basque region and the terrorism coming from there? And so suddenly we were talking about the Basque. And before long, we were the, the Chechen were actually were actually many of them associated with Al-Qaeda. And so we were talking about that. And it was a sense that if you were going to ask everybody in the world to be concerned about your terrorism problem, you had to be concerned about theirs too. But it, it, it did stretch the, uh, the notion and the mission uh, quite a bit. As so I, I didn't mean this about September 11th. Mean, I meant about it now. When people talk about yeah, it yeah. now, it's part yeah. of the war on terror. No, it's part of the geopolitical struggle against radical, radical Islam, which is one of about three forces that we're fighting against, China and Russia probably being two of the others externally. And, yeah. and terror is one battle in that war. And, and uh, viewed, it, it just seems silly to say, well, this was about the war on terrorism. Either that's the main problem with Afghanistan becoming stronger again, uh, or, well, we won the war on terror, so it's all over and we can pack up and leave. No, I, I agree, John. I'm, my only point was that sometimes when you create something at that moment, it sticks. And I think it's stuck because of the way we responded to September 11th. But I agree with you. It's a part of a broader geostrategic. You know, one of the, one of the issues that I have with abandoning Bagram is um, if you wanted a place from which to be concerned about another bad actor, Iran, uh, being in Afghanistan with which it shares a 900 kilometer border uh, might not have been a bad place from which to watch that problem too. So um, I think geostrategically, I always thought that geostrategically Afghanistan was more important than just uh, because of terrorism. But obviously, that's the reason that we used military force there. And I think that is a distinction that's worth making. Okay, John, good news. We have found Neil. We're looking for him in Berlin. And guess what? He's in Budapest. Hey, Neil, good to have you on the show. Uh, apologies for my late arrival. Uh, I'm sure I, I should offer an excuse, but I'll just say work of national importance. I, I wanted uh, to take advantage of the fact that we have uh, uh, Condi with us. To, to look forward in time and, and ask you, Condi, what, what do you think the next 9-11 will be, by which I don't mean another terrorist attack on a, on a major American site. I, I mean the next big strategic surprise that will have the same quality as 9-11 in changing, potentially changing the direction of, of US foreign policy. Can you, can you maybe give us some I know it's you can't predict black swans by definition, but what are the things that might come along and have comparable impact in the near future, do you think? Right. Uh, well, I have to say that uh, the problem with uh, one of the problems with 9-11 was a failure of imagination. We cannot imagine uh, civilian aircraft being hijacked, not to hijack the passengers, but to hijack the plane and fly it into a building. And so it was a failure of imagination. Um, I do think that I, I, I won't try to get outside the lines of what I can imagine, but I could see that the whole cyber world could produce the kind of dramatic, um, life-changing uh, event. Uh, I, I think, by the way, there are reasons that states might not go after each other in this way, but uh, there have been crazy things done by people before. And one could imagine a cyber attack that literally tries to bring the United States down in terms of infrastructure, in terms of the grid. Uh, we saw a little mini version of this when uh, the Russians shut down um, Estonia which had fashioned itself an e-country and one day the Russians just shut them down. Now, would that be a very dangerous thing to do if you are an American adversary? Could I imagine it coming from a China or Russia? Oddly enough, probably too much to lose. From an Iran, if they could have that kind of capability, perhaps. So I think the 
yeah, ubiquity and uh, the potential for these uh, kinds of uh, cyber attacks uh, would be the one that I would say. And there, I think we're not really uh, very well prepared. I think the central ingredient of a 9-11 is not just we hadn't thought about it, but our systems for dealing with it are dysfunctional. Uh, and uh, I mean, we just saw one, a pandemic, right. and our systems for dealing with the pandemic, the FDA, the CDC, the whole rest of it were completely dysfunctional and probably remain so to this day. Uh, cyber strikes me. It, it also has the feature of being deniable. Yes. Uh, we, we know where a missile came from. It's easy to hide a high cyber attack. And, and as a financial person, I, I don't want to invite where to go. But if you can spread the rumor that uh, Citibank lost uh, lost all its records of your deposits, you've got a financial crisis flaming down the country right now. Yep. And and I worry I worry about it because we're not very well prepared. And I think the reason we're not very well prepared is it's it's really about sharing information between the private and the public sector in ways that we've never had to do before. Terrorism was essentially a government problem. Yes, you had the you know soft targets that you had to worry about hotels cruise ships, et cetera. But this is something where the uh, battlefield is actually not owned by the government. In, in their defense, private. there's a whole bunch of people at the Fed and other agencies who are thinking about it. I just didn't want us to leave it as if our government hasn't thought about no, it. No, they are thinking about it, John. But I think the, the problem is, and, and by the way, I think the financial sector is the best prepared. I think they have actually been better prepared. We saw that perhaps the energy sector the is not so well prepared. So uh, what I've been arguing to people to avoid Neil's nightmare is sector by sector get prepared rather than trying to think of it as a large scale national problem, because the problems are different if you're talking about the energy infrastructure versus the financial infrastructure. My nightmare is that there is a 36 page cyber war preparedness plan somewhere uh, in the Pentagon, and it will work just as well as the 36 page pandemic preparedness plan that we had in 2018. Uh, one of the things that that I've, I've learned from thinking about uh, COVID-19 is that it's one thing to have a 36 page plan. It's another thing to have really done some drills and maybe really thought through how it might work in practice. And it worries me that I haven't really at any point heard any organization that I'm involved with uh, offer some thoughts about how we cope in the event of a cyber attack. So it feels like we don't have even the beginnings of drills for this. But every organization in America would be impacted if, if the internet were down, if cell phones were down. And I'm not sure quite how well we'd cope with that. It seems to me that it, even if it were only for a relatively short period of time, there would be quite a lot of chaos in the nation quite quickly. And if there's one thing that I think we should have learned over the last 18 months, it, it is that a 36-page plan is not enough. You you have to drill for this. Thousands and of pages of plan. We actually had thousands of pages of plans. <laughs> yeah, the 36-page plan it's was worse. just one of a one of dozens of plans. Well, 36-page plan might have worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm 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 thinking a lot about about that and whether we we really have the right approach to preparedness itself, whatever form disaster might take. But let me ask a. a a different question, which is very specifically China-focused. On Goodfellas, ever since its inception, we've debated the China challenge and the form it, it takes. And I think it's fairly clear that one of the scenarios that we may have to deal with in the next uh, perhaps three years, let's just pick a number, uh, is a showdown over Taiwan. And I, I'm very interested and, and, and curious to hear your thoughts about this, because I read uh, Bob Blackwell's and, and Phil Zelico's paper on, on the, the Taiwan scenarios earlier this year. And it's interesting to you, John, because one of the things they make clear is that this would have enormous financial implications. In fact, the US would certainly uh, want to unleash financial pressure on, on China. So let's imagine that 9-11, the, the next 9-11 is actually uh, that China invades Taiwan or launches an invasion of, of Taiwan, something that, that certainly is within the bounds of probability because we know Xi Jinping thinks a lot about this and this is really the thing that he most aspires to achieve during his leadership. 
if that happened, if instead of watching the World Trade Center burn and collapse, we 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 were suddenly watching uh, Chinese landing craft on the beaches of Taiwan and a full scale uh, invasion scenario, Condi, how do you think the U.S. How do you think the U.S. government would react? How do you think the U.S. more broadly would react? Neil, I and and I'm going to to say this in the following way to be a little bit provocative. Uh, it, it doesn't matter what I think the US government would do. It matters what Xi Jinping thinks the US government would do. <laughs> and so the advantage that we have in the Taiwan scenario versus the 9-11 scenario is I don't know if there was a way to deter the Al-Qaeda in a 9-11 attack. I can't think of a deterrent strategy, but I can think of ways to deter a Chinese attack on Taiwan. It would not have started, by the way, with a uh, humiliating American retreat from Afghanistan because credibility is indivisible. And if I were sitting in the Chinese power uh, centers at this point, I would think to myself, they spent all that treasure in a place, uh, human and, and physical treasure in a place that the attack on them took place and they left. Why would they defend? Why would they uh, defend Taiwan? And so I think we have a credibility issue. Now there are some things that we have going for us. Um, one is that uh, it's easy to underestimate the degree to which the last twenty years or so we've built up the Taiwanese armed forces to the point that they couldn't defeat the Chinese, but they could exact a price. And so making sure that they can exact a price is also very important, and that we've sent the right, you talk about exercises and, and simulations that you know we're doing the right things with our, with our uh, fleet and our support for Taiwan to show uh, that we could support the Taiwanese in defending themselves. So I still think there is a potential to deter that awful day, but it is really important that we send messages of credibility. I, I actually think that this would be a good time for a significant arms package to Taiwan, uh, just to remind the Chinese that we are, are there. I just wanted to say one thing about your, your scenario of the importance of exercising. You're absolutely right. I, I was just telling you one little quick 9-11 story just to go back for a moment. Um, I had been a part of those teams that they used to send out to the middle of nowhere to exercise the uh, continuity of government if the United States was attacked in a nuclear weapon, nuclear war. And the last one that I did was in the uh, in August of 1989. I was the Soviet specialist. And I remember telling Brent Scowcroft, I don't have time. Germany's unifying. Why am I going out for three days in the middle of nowhere for a nuclear war that's not going to happen? But on that day, two things that we had exercised, 9-11 came back to me. One was, you've got to get a hold of the Russians because their forces will be going up on alert. You don't want, our forces will be going up on alert. You don't want theirs to go up on alert and we get into a spiral of alerts. And so a conversation with Putin was really important early. The second was, we do not want friend or foe to think that the United States of America has been decapitated. The pictures are awful. The president's trying to get to a safe location. We're in a bunker. Nobody can speak. We sent out a, a cable to every post in the world. The United States of America is functioning. I learned that in those exercises uh, for the nuclear war that was never going to come. Condi, we, we need the will, but we also need the means. And what I'm reading about China leads me to, I and mean, they're building nuclear weapons at an extraordinary rate. Uh, they're building land-based missiles that can sink an aircraft carrier. So I'll add to Neil's, uh, and, you know, just to warn us, the Chinese sink two of our aircraft carriers. Uh, do we have the means, actually? So do we have the means to defend or the, the means and the will to take Taiwan back? It seems he doesn't need, even need to believe that we, even if he believes we have the will to do it, he may now be thinking, well, there's nothing they can do about it, even if they want to. Well, that's where you've got to make sure that uh, that calculation never enters his mind. Uh, the, the, you know, it's a big idea to sink an American aircraft carrier. That's a really big idea. And uh, probably that's something you, if you're the Chinese leadership, that's probably, I don't care how uh, humoristic and how uh, full you are of yourself at this particular point in time, that's maybe a risk you don't want to take. 
And so uh, I've always thought of it this way. Uh, you want the chief of the general staff of the Chinese armed forces to go in and Xi Jinping to ask, what are the chances that I can win this? And they say 90%, but the 10% is so awful that you don't take the chance. That's the formula for deterrence. And the reason I keep emphasizing deterrence is that uh, the moment that something happens, we or an American president, whoever it is at the time, is going to be faced with a really Hobson choice. Mm -hmm. And so you want to avoid that moment the way that you can. Now, the Pentagon, uh, I don't like cuts in the defense budget when we're affecting uh, when we and, and squeezing out defense spending with, uh, you know, runaway social spending. When we face these kinds of scenarios, the Chinese are putting enormous resources into their military buildup. They're not doing it for show. And so we had better uh, make sure that we're capable of, of uh, deterring anything. Perhaps the advice is, is remember General Yamamoto's advice on the eve of Pearl Harbor. Uh, America is complacent. It's disorganized. You will win this little battle. But America, America discovers its will after an attack. And, let, me, and we'll let, me, let me pick up on Pearl Harbor for a second, Condi. Um, December 1941, um, we're attacked. We're attacked not on the not on the mainland. We're attacked in Hawaii, a territory at the time. Most Americans could not find Pearl Harbor. Hawaii was just exotic location people didn't go to. Yet that attack was fuel for war. People signed up. People enlisted for the war. There was a song. Let's you know. Let's let's remember Pearl Harbor. It's used to raise money. And we fought. We fought a global war for the next four years, fueled in part by Pearl Harbor. 9-11, Condi, was a much more personal attack, I think, in this regard. It struck the Pentagon. It struck the brain of our military. It struck the financial heart of our country, the financial district of Manhattan. And yet this unifying mood of the country, it seemed to go away rather fast. What, what happened, Condi? And if we get struck again in a similar fashion, how long will this, how long can this country stay together before we fray again? Well, the, the unifying, uh, that feeling of unity uh, for the several, even years after uh, Afghanistan or after 9-11, after right. uh, I, I think we shouldn't underestimate it, uh, Bill. I, I, I think you look at the numbers of young people who join the armed forces. Uh, you know, we talk about the greatest generation with World War II, and it was, and we lost our own George Schultz and George H.W. Bush, for whom I, these, they, they were great. But there's a new greatest greatest generation. They're the people who signed up to go to unknown places like Afghanistan and Iraq after the war. Many of them are now in Congress. You may know that at Hoover, we're starting a veterans program and we're going to draw in people who are in business and in local government, because this was an extraordinary response by those people. And so I actually do think we had a remarkable response. And then we went back to squabbling. Uh, just as we do. And the reasons for those divisions, um, I think are, you know, we can have a full show on the reasons for those divisions. But I, I wouldn't underestimate the degree to which when uh, America is attacked in that way, uh, Americans come together and, uh, and did really extraordinary things in the way that they volunteered uh, to go to faraway places that most of them had probably never heard of at 18 or 19 years old. Also, World War II was only five years, and 20 years after 1941 was 1961, yes. when we were back at each, we're like, back at each other's throats. Throat. <laughs> yeah. Neil, it's sort of your turn to ask a big question, unless you don't want to, in which I, case I will. <laughs> I, I do have a big question, and, and it has to do with historical analogies and, and how, they, how they work, how they play a part in a crisis. My... Uh, Readings about what happened immediately after 9-11 suggested that the Pearl Harbor analogy was the one that was most often mentioned. And, and I, I'd love to get your take on this. How, how much history was going through your mind and, and the minds of other people? And, and were there other analogies besides Pearl Harbor and, and, and World War II uh, that were discussed in those in those extraordinary hours and days after the attack? It's, it's interesting. I, you know, people don't sit around and discuss the analogies, but they grab onto them in little snippets because your brain needs some way to organize what's happening to you. And that's why I think you grab onto historical analogies. And uh, Pearl Harbor seemed most uh, appropriate because it was a surprise attack. 
because we were unprepared. All of those uh, elements seem to have been repeating themselves uh, or rhyming, as uh, it's often said. And so, yes, I think that was the one. Very interesting, though, that one of the things that came out of that was a comment that I'll never forget from Colin Powell, because there was a question of whether or not we should declare war whether or not we should give the Taliban an opportunity, uh, a, I think it turned out to be 72 hours to turn over Al Qaeda. And there were those who said, no, we should just, just attack. And uh, Colin Powell said, decent countries don't do that. And he did use Pearl Harbor as an example of an indecent uh, attack because it was not uh, a declaration of war from the from Imperial Japan. So that's how people grab on to little pieces. The other analogy that floated around, ironically, given what we've just seen, is Vietnam. Um, and I remember President Bush um, saying, I'm not going to be Lyndon Johnson standing in the basement choosing targets. He wanted to give the military freer reign to fight the war the way that they felt it necessary. As I was writing an essay about uh, all of this, I think we, we've all been forced to write our 20 years on essays. I, I, I suddenly thought of a completely different analogy, which was with, with the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, and, and although that never really sort of came up at the time, in some ways, with the benefit of hindsight, it, it might make more sense than Pearl Harbor in the sense that this was a domestic act of, we would now say, terrorism. It was extraordinarily traumatic for contemporaries. And, and it wasn't long after that that, that that Lyndon Johnson escalated in Vietnam, not, not because they were causally connected, but, but in a strange kind of way that the, 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 the terrorist attack, the shocking event, seemed to lead in some strange, inexorable way to, to what proved to be an enormous quagmire in Vietnam. And I looked back on 9-11 on and I thought, you know, maybe it was more like that. And, and maybe the sequence of events ended up being much more like the 1960s than like the 1940s, even although the 1940s analogies were much more commonly used back, back in, in 2001. Now, now I, I find myself wondering if, if we did unwittingly uh, end up with the version of Vietnam? I mean, I asked this question with a sense of, oh, I don't know, despondency really, because I remember at the time thinking a lot about that and, and writing a very pessimistic book uh, entitled Colossus, uh, which was published in 2004, I think, but essentially saying this, this isn't going to work out well because, because the US doesn't have a great track record on sustained interventions in countries like Afghanistan and Iraq. Now, like 20 years later, I think actually the surprising thing was that we stayed in Afghanistan as long as we did. If you'd asked me in 2001, I would have said, oh, maybe 10 years, but I definitely wouldn't have expected 20 years of, of engagement in Afghanistan. Well, uh, this, this is where I talked about the false narrative, though, Neil. I don't think this was at all Vietnam. I think this could have been Korea. Yeah. Because Korea was a stalemate that we then remained to keep the place stable and to keep the North Koreans from attacking the South. That's how we should have thought about Afghanistan. And oh, by the way, does anybody think that we're in worse shape in uh, Northeast Asia because we have 28,000 forces there, uh, intelligence capabilities, uh, capabilities to watch the region as a whole. Uh, Afghanistan with a few thousand American forces air bases and uh, intelligence assets and the like becomes a foothold in a very dangerous region. And so I think you're right. Many people may have thought of it as the Vietnam analogy. I would have said it was the wrong analogy and it got us what we got a few weeks ago when we precipitously left. The analogy should have been Korea. Uh, do we have about three minutes left on the show here. So why don't you close out for us and just give us some final thoughts as we approach 9-11. Well, as we approach 9-11, um, I first want to say that for those of us who were in positions of authority on that day, every day after was September 12th, and um, I want you to know, and I want everyone who, who lost um, family members and the people who went to fight, um, 
first of all, that I personally have great remorse for the fact that we didn't see it coming. I think we did everything that we knew how to do, but by definition, we didn't do enough. And that's something I think that all of us will always live with is that sense of remorse that we couldn't prevent it. Um, I also would say to all of those who uh, gave their lives and those who came back maimed uh, from Afghanistan and other places, uh, even those who, um, who experienced effects many, many years after rushing into the Twin Towers, it really wasn't in vain. Uh, we are safer today than we were on September 11th, though we're not safe. And the decision to take the fight to the terrorist rather than have them fight on our territory, I think was the right decision. And I hope that 20 years from now, we're still sitting here uh, recognizing and experiencing the benefit of what came out of that terrible time, which was uh, a sense that the United States of America had to be vigilant because despite our fortunate history of um, two vast oceans on either side and uh, peaceful neighbors to the north and south, um, it turned out that our homeland was vulnerable in ways that we did not know. And I think we've reacted to that uh, in ways that have made us safer. And so all who say that because of the way that Afghanistan ended, uh, this was all in vain, um, just ask yourself this, if on September 12th, you would have taken a bet that we wouldn't have another 9-11 on our territory. I don't think it's a bet that most of us would have taken. Mm -hmm. Well said. Connie, thanks for coming on the show today. It was a fascinating conversation. John, Neil, great job as always. That's it for this episode of Goodfellows, but fear not, we'll be back next week with a new topic and new conversation. On behalf of my Hoover colleagues, Neil Ferguson, John Cochran, our boss, Condoleezza Rice, we wish you and yours the very best. Please, by all means, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds. <laughs>